Welcome to the podcast of the Canadian Psychological Association. My name is Eric Bullman. I am the communications officer at the CPA. And every week at the CPA, we send out the CPA news. I shouldn't say every, every month we send out the CPA news. It's the last Tuesday of every month. And in it, we tell everybody, all of our membership, what we've been up to, what we're working on in terms of advocacy, in terms of governance, and in terms of membership. And at the end, we include a section that showcases CPA members in the news. And we find about 30 members who have made news appearances, TV interviews, radio interviews, uh, or have been quoted in newspaper stories, and we share those. And this CPA news coming out on Tuesday features 15 of those stories from Dr. Monica Williams of the University of Ottawa. Uh, she specializes in racial equality and justice, and she joins us today. Monica Williams, um, I'm the Canada Research Chair for Mental Health Disparities at the University of Ottawa, and I'm in the School of Psychology. I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I also have a, um, I, I came here from the United States uh, last summer. I actually still have a clinic in Connecticut and um, hoping to, you know, do a lot of the things that I did there here. And what kind of things were those that you did at the clinic there? <laughs> well, uh, mainly the clinic, it's like a training clinic. So I train and supervise um, graduate students, interns, postdocs, and, um, you know, and other trainees who really want to learn how to do empirically supported treatments. Mm -hmm. And we have a couple specialty areas. We specialize in OCD and um, racial trauma and also psychedelic therapy. Uh, so racial trauma is really what I want to talk to you about today. Um, yeah. You have spoken extensively uh, about how discrimination can inflict trauma, PTSD, how it affects specifically black mental health. And uh, I was hoping you could just uh, elaborate on that here. Right. Well, so... Um... Racism can cause really like a whole host of mental health conditions and just about every condition that we've studied with respect to racism, it either makes it worse or can just cause it in its own right. Um, one of the things I'm most interested in is the fact that racism can cause uh, traumatization and you can end up with people having symptoms, you know, exactly like post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of experiences of racism. So, um, so, you know, you see people with feeling a lot of despair, depression, anxiety, um, nightmare, sleeplessness, avoidance, you know, all, all the same things you would see if somebody from someone who might be traumatized by combat or rape or assault. And obviously that's uh, ramping up right now. Uh, does the media coverage play into that? Is that, uh, you know, somebody sees something take place in a video and the PTSD that they are currently suffering from gets worse, or can that in itself cause uh, PTSD, cause trauma? Well, you know, one of the things that we're learning about PTSD is that it's cumulative. So most people who experience one traumatic event don't get PTSD. It's really when you have multiple traumas that you eventually get PTSD. And so, so somebody could have had many bad experiences with law enforcement and discrimination, and seeing, um, you know, somebody die at the hands of law enforcement on social media could be sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back, which tips them over from simply being incredibly stressed to being traumatized. So that absolutely could happen. Um, but more than, but 
often people have had many experiences before they become traumatized that would be qualified as what we would call criterion A events, according to the DSM-5, which could be things like being assaulted by police um, themselves. Right. Now, I see that you've done uh, several interviews asking people to stop sharing the George Floyd video in particular. Yes. And I'm wondering, uh, I I certainly understand how that uh, traumatizes people and how that... Uh, and and why you want people to stop sharing on their Facebook, on their social media, on their Twitter. Uh, but I'm wondering what you think about media reporting it in the first place. Well, I think it needs to be reported, but I don't think you need to watch an eight and a half minute video of a person dying to get a good account of what happened. I mean, if you think about how media reports other deaths, they don't show a video. They tell you what happened and maybe a few still shots or something blurred out, but you you never see a white person dying on camera because that would that's considered inappropriate, traumatizing and disrespectful to the victim and the family. But for some reason, it's okay with a black person. So what does that also communicate? That, that our lives are without value and that we don't get the same dignity everyone else does? I don't think that having to show an explicit, you know, killing video should be necessary for people to believe and understand what's happening. I think I agree with that, and I certainly understand it. I, I come from a media background, and I remember we had this conversation maybe 10 years ago when it came to beheading videos, yeah. and those videos would not be shown on network TV by any stretch, and right. nobody would ever think to do it, but we did have people in the newsroom advocating for us to watch it so that we could understand what we were talking about when we when we did discuss it and I could never bring myself to do it I, I couldn't bring myself to watch the George Floyd video either and mm-hmm. uh that was always a real bone of contention like should we actually watch it ourselves and then report on it or should we just acknowledge right. that it happened and certain you know understand that but you know putting yourself mm-hmm. through watching that is is pretty traumatic I think in itself it is. It is traumatizing. And, you know, your brain is better off without having watched it. So, you know, and so when we when we circulate these George Floyd videos, we're doing the same thing on, on a large scale. I mean, there's no doubt that certainly the beheading was newsworthy. But just because it's newsworthy doesn't mean we all need to watch it happen. And it sounded like for the most part, common sense prevailed. And that wasn't put that footage wasn't put on major networks and so and so forth. You know, and same. And how? Why is George Floyd different? Right, because he's black. Is really why he's different. Yes, yes, and I think that uh, is certainly part of the larger discussion. That uh, you know, we see all kinds of videos, and it's not just George Floyd. We see all kinds of videos shared. You know, and I think some people do it from a pla- a good place where they want to say, "Hey, look, you know what the police are doing here and what they're doing here." But it really is. I honestly don't know what the right word for it is, but it's stuff right. that I certainly don't want to see, but I also want to be constantly aware that it is happening. Sure, yeah. I mean, I call it black bodies as entertainment because, you know, there's been a long legacy of black people, um, particularly in America, their deaths uh, as a source of entertainment uh, for the masses. And uh, and I'm concerned that that's what's happening here too. Yeah, Uh and I think that is what's happening. And how do you think that affects the people who are sharing it? 
Um, you know, does it desensitize them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they wouldn't be sharing it if, if it was traumatizing them in the same way. I don't think most of them would be sharing it. But because, um, because there's already this deep racial divide and because um, so many people are conditioned um, to think of black people as other, um, then they're walled off from the trauma of it. Everyone should be traumatized seeing those videos, but they aren't. And maybe that just indicates where we are as a society, that we're not shocked by this, we're not traumatized by this, by and large, that it, um, that it's almost an accepted part of, of what's happening. And hopefully that's what's changing now, right? Hopefully that's what the Black Lives Matter movement and all the protests in the streets will affect, that you know, younger people aren't okay with it anymore. Let, I'm hoping so. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of very positive and encouraging support for um, the plight of oppressed Black people in America. But yet, you know, we had protests and riots after Rodney King. We had protests and riots after Ferguson, but nothing changed. So jury's still out whether or not this is going to make a difference at all. But I hope it does. I would hope so, too. And maybe there's something to... It happening in the middle of a pandemic where a lot of other things are going on as well. And that might give it the opportunity to have some actual legislation with teeth behind it and a, a shift in public opinion. Right. That's that's what we need. Um, and but I think it has to be kind of even more than just a, an opinion. I think people have to feel like this is this is an everyone problem. It's not just like a black problem. I mean, it. it so many forces in society, you know, can make this happen and cause it to perpetuate. And we have to sort of, you know, you've heard people talk about systemic racism. We have to dismantle systemic racism because this is, even if you have people of goodwill who think, who objectively think this isn't good, that's not going to be enough to change the systems that, that keep it going. Yeah. I saw the uh, post that, RCMP uh, union uh, leader put out to his members where, and it really was sort of disheartening that it was very much, we do not have a systemic racism problem that doesn't <laughs> exist within our ranks. Wow. You guys are all terrific and we will fight, you know, tooth and nail to prove that we don't have systemic racism. And you got to think, well, there's systemic racism everywhere. How can you not acknowledge that it exists in your organization as well? Right, exactly. I mean, that just shows, shows such a low comprehension of the problem that anyone would just outright say that without even any data or evidence. Like, if you could say, oh, we don't have systemic racism and here's why. You know, we've been tracking the outcomes from our arrests. We have a, a diversity in our ranks that matches the population. We're consistently doing anti-racism and anti-bias training and here's why we don't have it that would be credible but just to say that with nothing to back it up and clearly no understanding of the issue that actually illustrates the problem that there is systemic racism and um and people don't see it it's invisible yeah and i think that's maybe the biggest disconnect is that it is invisible unless you actually want to look for it right it's invisible because we've been trained not to see it yeah Talking about social media, right? The sharing of these videos and how it probably does more harm than good to, to do so. 
Uh, you were quoted in an article about a Kingston police officer who was under investigation just for a, a Facebook post. Yeah. Right? And it is an objectionable Facebook post. I, in my feed, see objectionable Facebook posts all day, every day. And I try very hard to comment on them and steer them in a certain direction. But I wonder at what point that's yelling into the void. Right. Well, I did get some hate mail over that. So clearly somebody read it. (laughs) 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 But, um, But I mean, I think we have to speak out, you know, maybe we're not heard the first time or the second time or the third time, but hopefully eventually enough of us raise our voices and and we'll be heard. I hope so. I hope that's where this is going. And, uh, you know, and one positive thing that I see is that, you know, many others are doing the same thing, right? When somebody posts an all lives matter meme, there are immediately two or three of their friends who comment underneath and say, Hey, listen, this is why that's not a good idea, right? right? This is why that's actually kind of racist. And let's take a look at why you're doing that. Right. So I think more than, more than before, that is something I'm seeing today. Yeah. Yeah. More people seem to be speaking out. Um, the problem is people, I think a lot of people just don't have a high tolerance for racial conflict. And I think a lot of people know what the right thing is, but they don't want to speak out because, you know, they, they, they don't want to end up, you know, embroiled in a conflict. Right. And I think that the idea that you can avoid conflict by not engaging in it is something that's maybe the word white privilege isn't accurate in that situation, but it is sort of a privileged position where you can choose to avoid that conflict if you desire to because it's not going to touch you exactly exactly that's a big part of the problem i mean and also robin d'angelo talks about what she terms white fragility and that a lot of white people just don't don't have the emotional stamina to confront these issues at all and is that because we haven't built up the emotional stamina over time uh the way people who are marginalized and who have experienced racism have done Yes, and I think that also a lot of white people have undermined their stamina by deliberately choosing not to talk about it. I mean, if you look at how white parents socialize their children around race, um, it's very different than, say, how, um, you know, African-American families socialize their children. African-American families teach their kids about racism and discrimination, you know, from an early age to protect them. And so that they know what to do if they're pulled over by police or accused of shoplifting. You know, they're taught, you know, don't wear hoodies, um, (laughs) things like this. Right. Whereas white families, they don't have to worry about that. And and instead, they're taught by their parents to not talk about race. And that's how you that's how you behave in a non-racist way, by acting like it doesn't exist. And um, and that sort of starts a pattern of avoidance. And well, I'm a behaviorist, so, you know, I know anything that you the longer you avoid it, the more you fear it. And so I think a lot of people have actually built up their fragility, so to speak. Um, And so when it's time to actually have those conversations, they can't do it or they find it just unbearably difficult. Right. And it leads to phrases like I don't see color where, (laughs) you know, that in and of itself is enough for you to say to yourself that, well, I'm not racist because I don't see color. And, you know, the, the fragility I think also comes from really, really, uh, objecting to the Mm -hmm. word racist in the first place. Yeah. Well, you know, I think 
people don't want to be called racists and they get real upset. Um, and the problem is, you know, people of color, like we know that we, we know that people are racist because they treat us in racist ways all the time, but we're not allowed to say that, you know? So this is a very difficult situation for us to be con- consistently subjected to racism from maybe people we work with or even friends or coworkers or family. But, and we cannot tell them you're behaving in a racist way because of the extreme and bizarre reactions that we get from people. And then they say, well, I'm not a racist. And it's sort of like, oh, yeah, you are. You know? <laughs> right. And I think at some point, I think I think all of us, uh, white people certainly, have to acknowledge that we do have some racial bias based on the way we've been raised, based on the way we've lived our lives our, you know, for 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's going to be some inherent bias just uh, based on the way we've gone through the societies completely differently than the way, say, mm-hmm. black people or indigenous people have gone through. Right. I mean, yeah, everybody's got some biases. That's just, I mean, you know, I don't even have to guess. We have data, okay? Right. <laughs> that people have that people have racial biases, and I mean, even even people of color have racial biases against other people of color. So it's not just a white person thing, but it does all serve the interests of white supremacy, because a lot of times people of color may have internalized racism. They, you get all these racist messages from society, and you ingest it and. And um, and then you start to think that you're not as good. So um, so everyone has biases. Yeah. And I do wonder, I mean, and I keep coming back to the media because that is my background. And I, I wonder yeah. about coverage of things like, and just yesterday, uh, Donald Trump did a rally where he used some seriously racist terms. And the media calls him out on it and they point out those are very racist terms. But at the same time, I feel like it does amplify his message to those people who might take it and run. Yeah, I think that whole thing with Donald Trump's very unfortunate. You know, like when he was running for office, nobody took him seriously. I, I didn't. I thought he was just, you know, like a, I don't know, a reality TV star with a lot of money. But he got a lot of coverage because he said things that were really outrageous, which I think ended up, you know, making him a popular candidate because he was you know he had this huge media platform and um and I, so i do think that there is a danger of giving people too much attention um for uh you know for these behaviors i mean really like are we really surprised by anything donald trump says at this point um, right. so i don't yeah i don't think it's uh I, I don't know that it's useful to as you point out amplify his voice because certainly then that just spurs on, you know, people who have racist sentiments. And I remember back in maybe 2013, 2014, uh, when Donald Trump started with this birtherism thing and questioning mm-hmm. Obama's birth certificate. And I remember there were people online, on Twitter especially, who would try to answer anyone who even responded negatively to Trump and say, please just don't give him the air. Don't give him the oxygen. Don't mm. talk to him. Don't engage with him. Like, yeah. let's ignore this thing entirely. Uh, but for the, I, obviously, it didn't work for them, and not too many people actually paid attention, or not enough people paid attention. And then, of course, it snowballed from there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think he's. I think he knows how to use the media to his advantage in that way, and he he knows he could say something really outrageous and get a lot of attention or draw attention away from other things that are maybe more important 
you know, so, uh, yeah, so unfortunately, um, you know, his, his voice and all this has been very toxic, uh, has really contributed to the escalation of racial tensions in the United States, which is why you see, you know, the unrest that we see today. I think it was a perfect storm. Yeah, I think so. And I think that even here in Canada, uh, it's yeah. escalated racial tension as well, uh, partly because I think a lot of people who kept their views hidden for a long time can yeah. now sort of, they feel more licensed to say horrible things, but yeah. also they can hide that, uh, you know, racial animus behind a, well, I support Donald Trump. That doesn't make right. me racist sort of um, plausible deniability. Right, right, exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, you definitely see the impact, you know, here in Canada and all, all over the world, really. Uh, there have been a lot of leaders emerging um, that have, you know, this, who kind of promote a lot of these very, like, racist, you know, xenophobic, even homophobic and nationalist sentiments. Um, and it's not making the world a better place. Yeah, it, it certainly isn't. But hopefully, uh, you know, the pushback will make the world a better place down the line, right? This, this is I the hope. hope. So. <laughs> this is the hope. Yeah. You know, but you get enough of these people in power and they don't, they don't give it up so easily. So we'll see. I see here that you did an interview in French. Uh, I did. About using white privilege to act against racism and i'm wondering if you could uh you know elaborate on that here but in english yeah no actually that it that one i didn't do in french i did one interview in french for the radio and then they didn't end up airing it i was so disappointed i practiced all weekend oh no <laughs> <laughs> so i think the other way they just picked it up off of something else but i'm happy to talk about it <laughs> um yeah uh because I think a big problem is, you know, because uh, people of color are, are minorities, you know, we don't, and, and, and disenfranchised in a lot of ways, you know, we don't have the, the funds, the political clout, the time, the connections to, you know, to change things the way they need to be changed. So we need white allies. We need white people to stand with us and um, be willing to speak out and make changes in, the area, in, in ways that they can. So... I think a lot of white people are sort of like, yeah, I'm behind you, you know, when they can say that privately, but when it comes time to step out, they, they don't. And so, and so allies are people that will speak, that will speak out and do on your behalf um, the things that you can't do on your own because of, you know, the oppressive structures. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we need people who, who will really stand up. And, um, and unfortunately those folks are very few and far between. There are a lot of people who will say, oh, well, if I hear, you know, a microaggression, I'm going to say something or I'm going to do something. And, and research shows that that people will say they will do that. But research also shows when it comes down to it, they don't do it. So, um, so right. there's a disconnect between what people want or even what they think they'll do and what they actually do. And do you think that's uh, something akin to the bystander effect where they just hope someone else will step up and talk about the microaggression or do you think it's uh something different when it comes to racial microaggressions i think it's a little different i think people tend to i think they underestimate how how much they're impacted by white fragility 
One of the other things that I see a lot is, you know, well-meaning white people who want to do something, who say, yes, I am behind you, who probably actually will do something in that circumstance, but they also say, tell me what to do because they're afraid of taking that first step, making a misstep and then getting piled on for it or whatever. Right. And I guess, I I think that's some of the fragility also. I think you have to go into it knowing I'm going to make a mistake, but I'm going to learn from it and, and move the conversation forward. Um, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm conducting an anti-racism workshop right now. And one of the, one of the participants in the group, he's actually an MD and he said, I'm, I didn't say anything today during our workshop because I was afraid of making a mistake and hurting somebody. And I said, look, you know, this is a learning process. You're going to make mistakes. And that's just how it works. You can't actually learn to be anti-racist until you practice it. And any, any area where you want to grow in involves mistakes. But then we make mistakes. We learn how to deal with the mistakes. And actually, you can make relationships stronger by apologizing when you make mistakes and, and mending, you know, uh, fix, mending the problem. So, right. So you have to make mistakes. Otherwise, you're just silent. And then that's just as bad. Then you're complicit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Instead of getting defensive about the mistake, just, uh, you know, learn from it. Right. Right. I mean, I have a, a colleague who um, is, you know, head of the diversity group at his university and he pretty much says I pretty much have to just wear an I'm sorry button because he finds himself constantly putting his foot in it but the important thing is that he's learning and growing and apologizing and and people appreciate that people of color appreciate it because they so like we so rarely get an apology when people behave in a racist way we get usually a lot of anger or defensiveness but it's nice to just get a sincere hey I'm really sorry I'm going to improve you were talking earlier about uh, how a black family talking to their child about racism is much different than the way a white family does, which generally is to, you know, we don't talk about race and then we get by kind of thing, right? And right. I, I'm thinking that's sort of analogous to uh, parents who tell their young girls, you know, mm-hmm. what to do to avoid being sexually assaulted, but no one really talks to boys about how not to sexually assault. <laughs> Right. right. I, I'm wondering yeah. if you think that actually is analogous or if I'm making a leap there. No, I, I love your analogy. It makes a lot of sense. I think I'm going to use it in my next training. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're exactly right. Right. When when our girls go out and date, we're like, OK, so, you know, make sure that, you know, don't go up into his room and check your drinks and, you know, don't wear a skirt that short or whatever. I'm just saying this because I had teenage girls. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but boys, yeah, you never. You know, parents like, okay, have a good time. Um, Right. Don't drink too much. Right. And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense because, like, boys, like, in our culture, they they don't usually get taught by parents how not to to assault or not to harass. And they need to learn that, too. And, yeah, by, by the same token, people with a lot of privilege, it's important that they learn, too, that they may be... Uh, stepping on other people or oppressing them without even noticing it. And it could be something as small as, you know, you're in a, you're at a, uh, you have a group, a lab group, and, you know, you continue to assert yourself and talk over uh, women or people of color and and they defer to you and you don't notice, right? It could Mm -hmm. be something that small, but, um, but that's how you sort of learn to play nicely with everyone 
recognizing that, you know, um, you may be taking up more space and people may be giving you more space and you don't know it. Right. Because for you, that's been the default for so long. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Now I talked a little bit about your, the interview you did in French. You've also sent me interviews you've done in German and Spanish. And I'm wondering how many languages you actually speak. No, no, I'm, I'm an American, so I only speak English. Oh, (laughs) but you practiced your French all weekend. I did. I did. I've been learning French since I got here. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but the German interview was interesting because I got an email from a a colleague who said, Hey, you were, you know, I saw you in this German newspaper. This is like one of the top German newspapers. I was like, really? That's so cool. So I was excited, but I have family in in Germany. My sister and my nieces live there and they're, they're all fluent in German. So, um, uh, and my niece, you know, she, she really struggled when all this started happening in the States with, she saw the, she saw the George Floyd video. She didn't know what it was. She turned, turned on her, her phone. She heard her phone beep and she looked at it and she was shocked and she couldn't stop crying. Um, Mm. And she called me and she's like, what's going on? How could this happen? Why is this happening? You know? And, um, and she actually wrote about how this has affected her. And I thought it was important for people to understand that this isn't, you know, this isn't just happening in America, you know? So, yeah. Uh, but, uh, and, and actually, so yeah, I put, I, I posted a story on my blog about, you know, black people in Germany and how, how it's affecting us here. Right. Because yeah, it's an international thing. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to me to see demonstrations happening all over the world um, because of an incident that happened in the United States. And it's very easy to sort of think of this as just an American problem, right? American police and American racial tension and that sort of thing. Uh, but it really shows that it is a global problem and that, you know, especially here in Canada, we have to really rethink the way that we police communities, that we, uh, fund police even. I know defund the police has become sort of the talking point and the, the phrase that people are using. I think it's a little misleading because very few people mean actually abolish the police, um, but you know, at some point we have to have that discussion as well. I think. Yeah, yeah. I was I was doing a panel last week. I was the moderator, and and the topic of the police came up, and I was like, well, you know, uh, I pay for the police with my taxes, and I can't use them because I'm a person of color. So why not defund them? Everyone was right. Like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, that was a hard question, but. But I know I think it merits a discussion because I think it's something most people don't think about. You think, oh, if I have a problem at my home, I can call the police and they'll come and they'll help me. But for people of color, it's like if I call the police, they will come and assault me. They might shoot me. They might they might harm someone I love. They might um, put a warrant for my arrest because I haven't been able to to pay this fine. And that's what you see in a lot of communities of color that they they can't even use the police they pay for. Um, and mm-hmm. so I'm sort of of the mind, well, if I can't use it, how, why should I pay for it? I'd like you to tell me, you know? And so often the discussion comes down to, okay, well, we'll take some of that police funding away. We'll put it into mental health services. Uh, we'll have those mental health services respond to 911 calls rather than the police to avoid. Mm-hmm. But I think that is uh, a very small symptom of the larger problem. I think you pointed to it earlier, which is, you know, there might be a warrant for 
you know, an arrest of me because I haven't paid a parking ticket or something. Right. And then you go into the system and you never come out. Or when you do, it's so many years later, it's a disproportionate length of time that you've spent in that system. Uh, and you see these videos and, you know, mm -hmm. it's somebody trying to run away. And yeah. you think, why are they running away? Well, it's because if they get taken in, even if they did nothing wrong, there's a good chance that they can't afford bail and they're going to be sitting in there for the next five years with no recourse. Right. I mean, this is why I said to fire that guy in Kingston because he's sitting there saying, well, they should just comply with police because they'll get their day in court. And then it's like, what are you talking about? Do you not understand that systemic racism um, means that they may not get a day in court. They may have to take a plea bargain because they can't afford, they can't afford a lawyer. They can't ma mount a good defense and no one's going to believe them over the, over the officer who may not be telling the truth. So no, they don't have any reason to be optimistic. They, a lot of them, they're like, I'm going to take my chances. Maybe I'll get shot in the back, but Hey, um, I'm going to try. But honestly, I think it's not that well thought through. I think people just panic because they've already had so many bad experiences. They've seen so many bad things in their neighborhood that um, the fight or flight response kicks in and they run, whether or not they've done anything, quote unquote, wrong. I imagine that it's uh, a lot like the PTSD you're, you're talking about, something that builds up over time uh, because of a whole lot of small incidents where uh, finally this is the action that results from that accumulation over time. Yeah, cor correct. I mean, and I've I've done you know clinical assessments of many situations like this, and um, and in every case, the person you know has had a great deal of trauma um, around their experience of being racialized and with law enforcement. Now, uh, you are. I'm sorry if I'm getting this wrong. The chair of the oh, at the university, at the university, I'm the Canada Research Chair for Mental Health Disparities. Mental health disparities, I'm sorry, yes. Right. And so when you're talking about mental health disparities, mm -hmm. are you talking about the disparity between the mental health services available uh, to most of us and then the mental health services available to uh, people of color who usually can't find a mental health professional uh, with a sh shared background? Right. Well, it's kind of broader than that. I mean, we're looking at... I'm really interested in differences in outcomes as far as mental health goes, and one of and certain and barriers to treatment um, is a really important piece of that. So, uh, but there are disparities for other reasons too, um, and and I study kind of all of those things. But but certainly one big one big cause of disparities is that people of color, you know, often can't find um, someone from their own ethnic group who can help them. Um, someone who sort of understands their community and their their lives or their language um, or, or you know has a kind of shared cultural understanding or faith these are all things that get in the way I mean we know that among psychologists they're overwhelmingly white and um, and so if you're looking for a psychologist and you happen to be Vietnamese you're gonna have a hard time finding a Vietnamese psychologist right uh, I was talking to uh, Dr. Anusha Kassan from UBC a couple of days ago, and she was saying uh, basically the same things you were saying, but she was talking about how uh, the psychologists that we do have right now, uh, the mental health professionals that are out there, yes, overwhelmingly white, uh, but they can learn in order to be able to better help 
uh, people who are experiencing racial trauma. And mm-hmm. it's she was saying the same stuff that you are, right? Which is listening, learning, and uh, really paying attention to um, what those communities are experiencing before you even start to uh, go into some of the therapeutic. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And I think, I mean, because we don't, well, really any therapist should be able to help any person, no matter what their background, but that's not the reality of it. So, um, and also sometimes uh, clients are more comfortable with someone from their own group and they should be able to find someone from their own group if that's what they, they feel that they need. So, so the problem is twofold. One is our, you know, the, the um, number of psychologists isn't adequate uh, to, to meet the need for communities of color and the psychologists that we do have are not adequately trained to meet those needs. And, um, and for the most part, I don't, I mean, this is, I mean, I don't have data on this, but my impression is that most of those psychologists aren't running out to get more training. So, uh, so this is the problem. And at the same time, I think the ones that are voluntarily getting the training are probably the ones who, who need it the least. Uh, you know, right. Yeah. The folks who really need it are the ones who just don't even see the point. I mean, I really think that all psychologists should have to, should have to do ongoing training you know, in, in anti-racism work and cultural diversity, the landscape is changing very fast in Canada. Um, and we have to keep up with the times and we have to keep up with the shifting demographics. Right. And I think that, I think you've hit on the, uh, on the crux of the issue for so many, not just in the mental health field, but elsewhere as well, which is that those who are willing to do the work are likely those who need to do the work the least. <laughs> yes, right. And and I noticed too, like particularly the older generation of psychologists, you know, this wasn't even something that was discussed when they were coming down the line. And, I, and some of them seem even a bit annoyed and indignant that they now have to, you know, consider things like, you know, ethnicity and racism and culture because they never had to before. Right. And much of that, I think, is maybe something we talked about earlier, which is the, you know, I don't see color method of not being racist. Right. And yeah. uh, Yeah. So having to actually acknowledge that different ethnicities and different communities uh, do experience things differently. uh, It feels almost like you're uh, if you've come from that place, I think it probably feels as though now you're actually labeling a group of people and putting them in a category and that feels racist to some people i think yeah i mean that that's a yeah i agree that's kind of a product of their socialization but it's it's not helpful um right it's actually dysfunctional you know and i i I have had some psychologists tell me oh well you know i don't really need training because you know all my clients are white i don't know it just happened that way I'm thinking that didn't just happen that way. <laughs> you know, there's right. a reason. And that should be a problem, frankly, if you wake up one day and realize all your clients are white, you should ask yourself why. Right. Yeah. Or all your employees at your company are white. Or, you right. know. Yeah. Or the whole board of directors is white. Yeah. I, I know that's a conversation that a few more are having right now, and hopefully it becomes a little more 
ingrained in the culture that you have that discussion and you really take a look at your hiring practices and your promotion practices and all that kind mm-hmm. of thing within companies and uh, within practices as well. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, and it has to go beyond even just looking at it. You have to make changes. And I think that's the thing that so many people are frustrated about at this point. It's like, okay, we've heard enough people say this is a problem. Um, we need to do something. When does the we're doing something part start, you know? It's kind of like like the mental health days that you see online, right? Where everyone shares, you know, let's talk or let's, you know, but at some point you have to act on that as well, right? And it's all well and good to have the discussion, but yeah, the action is the key point. That's the that's the goal in the end that you have to keep your eye on. Yeah, I mean, there was a, a period a few years ago where there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of protests and um, a, a, about racism at, on college campuses, and um, a lot of those college campuses, as a result, they're like, okay, we're taking this seriously. We're bringing in outside experts. We're gonna do an assessment of the racial climate. We'll have a report made. We're gonna do surveys. And at the end of it, they'd have this beautiful report with recommendations and they didn't do any of the recommendations, you know, mm. they're like, Oh, that's too hard. You know, or do we really need to do that? Right. And so, you know, so it didn't bring about change because they weren't willing to do what it would take to create an equitable environment. Do you have any idea how to make that final step between here are the recommendations and this is the science that tells us it's a good idea to do the following things and actually yeah. getting it done. Is it is it just public pressure on elected officials or uh, student pressure on the dean of a of an institution of higher learning, or is it something else? Well, ultimately, it's the folks at the top who have the power to implement the changes. You know, the students and the the rank and file workers they can they can make their voices heard, but they can't make the changes happen from where they are. And they may face retaliation um, even just for speaking out. So what you need is many, many people um, making their voices, raising their voices so that the people at the top hear it and make a change. And they have to persist until the changes are made. Um, and and that's sometimes the tricky thing. Like when I, one university I was at, you know, lots of people on the bottom rung, so to speak, had diversity trainings. Um, but the executive office never had any. And so then they ended up doing something really embarrassing. Um, where right. they, And then they finally started to think, oh, maybe we should have diversity trainings for ourselves as well. Uh, so I was able to be a part of that process. And I taught, you know, the president's office about microaggressions. And I, I, I started out very general and I got more and more specific. <laughs> right. And I was like, and here's some microaggressions in the community and here's some on campus. <laughs> and, um, and I said, and here's a picture of the Confederate monument that I have to walk by every day from my parking spot to my office. And right. here's how it affects me, you know, and what if this was a Nazi monument and Jewish faculty had to walk by it? Do you think we would all just let it sit there? And, mm-hmm. uh, and I could tell the, and everyone was like stone silent because nobody wanted to say anything because the university president was there, right. <laughs> but, um, but within a few months he had the monument removed and let me tell you, this monument had been a sort a bone of contention for decades, but it only took one person to move it, you know? So I think that's the case with a lot of these barriers. There are people who can just by, by force of will change it. 
and um, and and we need to you know we need to push those people or change those people. Yeah, and you know every now and then you see people just by force of will yanking a monument straight over and throwing it in the <laughs> river, right? Yes, yes. Though I have great personal risk, I must add, though, because it's really up to the people in charge if they want to you know, uh, arrest those people and prosecute them for vandalism, fish the monument out and put it back up. Or if they're going to be like, okay, we'll let this go. And it does all come down to the people at the top. And maybe, uh, I mean, the long-term solution is of course, to change the makeup of the people at the top. Yes. Right. But for now, uh, I think, I think you're right. The force of will of just enough people can, can get some things done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some things have been in place for so long, people think it can't be changed. But um, most of the most of the things in these institutions, they, they can be changed. A lot of them can be changed really quickly, just with somebody, somebody with enough power saying, yeah, let's change it. Well, I hope that uh, one day we all have enough power. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to leave it off there. I think this is been terrific. You've been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Dr. Monica Williams. You're very welcome. It's nice, nice talking with you too.